Good morning, Grace Place family. Welcome, glad you're here. Why don't you just uh, kind of look around, uh, locate somebody, make eye contact, and wave, all right? So grateful that Hannah stopped sneezing. It's good to see you, Hannah. <laughs> Allergy season, oh man, it hits me, it hits all of us. We are going to be, for those of you who are online, uh, we are going to be receiving communion at the end of this. So I just want to give you a word of uh, exhortation to go and find something, even if it's just uh, a little bit of water and a cracker that you have, and we will receive communion together. The elements are not as important as what we do in remembrance of the Lord and what they symbolize for us. So uh, it would take time to do that and get that prepared for you and for your family. We are extremely grateful for what God has been doing in this God Talk season. And I was telling our uh, group today when we were praying before service started, it's hard to believe that we had, it's almost come and gone. This is the next to the last week of God Talks. And it's just been fantastic. God has done some incredible things. I see some of you guys wearing shirts like me, the God Talk shirts looks awesome. This year, great design by Austin and Amanda worked on this for us and got it together. And it's just been a great, great season where we have together, I think, uh, been encouraged by the Lord, instilled with courage. Uh, we've talked about courage. That's been the essence of what we're talking about today out of Acts chapter 7 in a moment we're going to read together. So if you have your Bibles, you want to turn there and follow along with us, uh, this whole story will unfold for you. But we're going to jump into the section where uh, actually Stephen is preaching. And it's a powerful message and it's the last message Stephen gets to preach. Today we're going to talk about the courage to die. And uh, we, we've been talking about courage all through this series and how to live in courage and how to banish fear and that fear really has no place in the life of a believer and a Christian. We view, uh, we have a worldview that changes everything in terms of the way we look at life and death. Uh, we are not just looking at life on earth. It's fantastic. It's great. I'm so grateful for it. I found myself last night just kind of uh, couldn't sleep. And so uh, going through my mind was all of the wonderful things that have happened over my lifetime here. And it seems like a flash in the pan to me sometimes thinking back to, you know, grade school, junior high. Uh, I don't remember when I was uh, born, right? But uh, grade school, junior high, high school college, uh, you know, pastorate ministry, and, uh, you know, all the many years, the friends we've made, the people. We had a, a, a friend who contacted us. They were evangelists uh, for a long season, her and her husband, and uh, we grew close to them. They came quite often to the Phoenix area and quite often to do revivals at our church, and at that time, Michelle and I were actually just on staff, uh, youth pastor and children's pastor. And they remembered us as kids, and she had some great fond memories, you know, of us and was sharing. And she said, I am so uh, encouraged and moved as I watch your ministry and I see your children in ministry with you and just the commitment and the dedication that you guys have and all your family has to the Lord. And it has really been a source of encouragement to very kind words that she was saying to us. And uh, it really, really means something. Uh, and it came at a... At a particularly special time, I think, when, you know, you can look around and be, um, you know, find all the fault with yourself and the things that maybe you're not going right. And God has a way of just kind of letting you know there are some things that you did right, right? <laughs> and 
and encouraging you in that. So it's been a great, great season. And uh, this message, I think, is going to bring us uh, to a, a great uh, place of climax in our understanding about how far courage can go, the courage to die. You have your Bibles with you, Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 51. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. We're going to read today about Christianity's, uh, after Jesus, Christianity's first martyr. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. Stephen speaking. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who uh, for uh, the coming of who foretold of the coming of Jesus, of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, and have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The stoning of Stephen was one of the most shocking incidents that took place in the New Testament early on in Christianity. It was a stark demonstration of the hatred of Jerusalem's religious authorities that they had for Christ and for his followers. But more than that, it set the stage to spread Christianity to the rest of the world because this violent persecution of Stephen uh, caused Christians to begin to flee Jerusalem, and wherever they went, they took the Torah, they took the gospel, they took the good news of Jesus Christ with them, and they were planting churches, and they were proclaiming the good news of Jesus. So while initially it, it dispersed them in, one, in fear of the mob attack, their courage was reinstilled, and we see the planting of churches, and the growth of Christianity was one of the results that happened where blood was spilled in Stephen's life. The real victim of this passage, though, is not Stephen. He is no victim at all. He's, he wins. He dies, but he dies a victor. They live, but they live a loser. The mob is the tragedy. Stephen was the victory. In his book on uh, the courage of joy, 
living dangerously, Osho tells a story that's kind of interesting, and it's a legend of some sort. But he tells of Alexander the Great, and how Alexander the Great was having great success on the battlefield, but there was a particular army that he admired that was succeeding, and uh, he had not yet conquered this group, but they had succeeded in putting down unrest everywhere they had been, and they used specific kinds of warfare to do so. He learned that one of their generals was away from the troop and was bathing in a, in a river nearby, and so he sent his, a small envoy, a group to go and to collect him at peace and tell him to come and see Alexander the Great. He thought just the mention of his name was going to bring this guy, you know. And uh, he would come and, and help him understand their, how they did strategic warfare. He wanted to learn from him. But the man refused. And he stood unclothed, naked in the presence of this envoy and stood with such courage uh, in, the, in the midst of this group of, of armed men, that they were amazed and just wandered off and went back to Alexander the Great to tell him what had happened. He was outraged that his envoy had not brought this general back to him, and so he rides out with his sword unsheathed, and he comes right down to where this man is, and as the man begins to speak to him and talk to him, and he tells him, I have no fear of you, I have no fear of death, I've only the body fears death, and I left that body a long time ago. And he, he begins to proclaim to him how he has no fear. And this was a summation that, uh, according to Osho, that Alexander the Great had of his encounter with this man. Because he sheathed his sword, and he rides back to the encampment of his army without this man. And all of these soldiers are wondering, well, I thought he would have his head or something. What happened? And he says to the men there, he says, it is difficult to kill a man who is ready to die. <laughs> it's difficult to kill a man who's ready to die. Further, Osho writes that it is your fear that makes you a slave. Your fear makes you a slave. Giving a little background on Stephen's story in the early church, um, Christian church, a few years uh, after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the believers in Jerusalem uh, put all of their resources together and began ministry, but the Greek Christians complained that their widows were being ignored in the distribution of food, and so they appointed seven deacons uh, that were appointed to oversee the proper sharing of this food and reaching out to everyone who had a particular need and all of the everyday matters. Now, Stephen, a man full of the Holy Spirit, it's described in, in Scripture, was among one of those seven deacons that were selected to go and oversee these ministries, these benevolence ministries. But Stephen performed great miracles as well wherever he went in Jerusalem. And, and this brought about uh, the, the religious groups who were opposed to what he was doing and and didn't understand what authority he thought he was operating in. And so there became uh, these, these ongoing arguments with Stephen. But as Scripture records, they could never win out with him because he was operating as a man full of the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking in, in terms of, of that today that even in our day, we're seeing people who are operating out of the wisdom and they cannot be countered in argument, so there's not even an attempt to counter them, there's an attempt to cancel them, right? Yeah. 
There's an attempt to, to get rid of their voices that they can't be heard, uh, to stop them from being seen wherever they could be visible, whether it be social media or in the print or uh, on, on, on via television or whatever it might be. And so we're seeing this whole kind of revolution in America of, of different venues starting to arise where people's voices can be heard that are being squashed out. And so it was in the day with Stephen that they did not want his voice to be heard, yet they couldn't win any arguments against him. He knew the word of God, and they failed at every turn. And so in secret, they convinced false witnesses, uh, false witnesses to lie, accusing Stephen of blasphemy. Blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against God, the highest crime uh, that they could uh, convince others of. And, and in ancient Judaism, blasphemy was punishable by death. What's interesting about this story, though, is that um, they are under Roman rule, and there was no authority for them to execute the final judgment. They could have their little courts, but they had to appeal finally to the Roman court in order to be able to carry out a sentence of death. But as we read along, we find that the mob is ruled by their rage rather than yeah. fearful of the law and what's taking place. This is a picture that begins to weave a contrast for us through these verses. It, it really boils down to, to, in a general sense, to a contrast between a hostile, Christ-hating world and the gentle, loving-filled servant of God who confronts the world. And it's a dramatic contrast, as you and I get a chance to look at it, and it's the first martyr uh, Christian martyr Stephen set an example for countless thousands of martyrs that would follow him after that day. And martyrs are especially esteemed by God. And this is shown in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. We see that the martyrs in heaven are given white robes as a symbol of, of blessedness. And the martyrs are, are esteemed by God because they declare a particular message that's important for us to understand today. Believers who live and die in faith declare the message that it is, it, is, uh, a, it is a not only a good thing, it is the right thing to live for Christ, yeah. to live for Christ. Yeah. And those of us who are believers, who are examples uh, before our world of what it means, it was a, it was a tribute uh, for uh, this, this friend of ours, Rita, to proclaim that Michelle and I are, are, are good Christians, that we're good parents, that we've raised some godly kids. And that ultimately, you know, the final word on that is God's word. But it's, it's an honoring to hear that from someone else, that, they, that they, they admire what you're doing, that they think that good things are happening. That's the extent of our living record. We have lived for Christ. But what's different about the martyrs is the martyrs proclaim Christ is worth dying for. Yeah. Christ is worth dying for. He's worth living for, we proclaim, in our life uh, and, and that is fulfilled on earth and we die in, in, uh, in uh, our faith. We proclaim it's, he's worth living for. It's, it's worth any sacrifice that might be made. But the martyrs proclaim Christ is worth dying for. Christians believe that, that life is just a prelude to what God has in store for us in eternity. It's just a short uh, segment of life. But life in eternity, God has so much more planned for us, not floating around on clouds and playing harp, but it, God has 
a, a wonderful plan in the universe for us. I think about passages of where, you know, Jesus said, you've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. And, and you start thinking about what is life going to look like in eternity? And what will we be doing in eternity? And you're being prepared in this life for those things. Some of you are good as administrators. And some of you, you know, have a, a keen insight to think outside the box. And some of you, you know, have uh, gifts and talents and singing and playing instruments. And certainly all of those things that are being developed in us in this life are things that will be useful to us in eternity. I've thought about how wonderful it would be if you have the time to, when you get to heaven, just to go around some of my favorite musicians, you know, and uh, Christian musicians. I love the piano and people who can play the piano. I try at it a little bit, but man, I see that gift in some people. And I've grown up around some people that were absolutely unbelievable. I remember going up to, in college, uh, I used to just sneak away and go up to the fourth floor in the music room and sat there, there was uh, all of these rooms that had pianos in them, and I would just go from door to door and sit by those doors and listen to those guys play. There was one guy, he played, uh, you know, kind of like uh, uh, Jimmy Swaggart or Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, he just tore the piano up with that little bluegrass country, you know, kind of stuff. And there was, there was people who were more concert-oriented, and I would sit there and listen to that. And you could hear all the beautiful hymns and psalms and songs of the Lord being played in different versions. And I thought, man, this is heaven. Right here, man. Just sitting here uh, on the fourth floor and listening to all of this. Love harmonies. My grandfather was a member of the original Stamps Quartet. I was blessed to have an opportunity to travel with a group and sing when I was in Bible school. I, would, I love that kind of harmony, man. It's almost like the music is being played when the music's not being played. When you hear that close crisp harmony that's going on and and uh, you know that's going to be something can i have the lord just like thousand years to like sit and hear all these great quartets and singing groups and you know can we just just hear them sing songs about you and just worship and and love on you but i have a feeling that there's going to be business to be taken care of in eternity as well god has some things in store for us we have a a deep conviction that, that god gave to to stephen as well a, a courage as Christians to live this life in, in light of eternity, not just in light of just this life. And when it's over, it's over. But we look forward to a city, as was talked about, that Abraham was looking for, a city whose builder and maker is God. Yeah. And so Stephen begins this really powerful message. I just want to point out a couple of passages to you. He's he starts off by calling them stiff-necked and uncircumcised. And I'm going to tell you in a moment what all of this is alluding to. And then he, towards the end of that passage, he says, who have received the law by direction of angels and have not kept it. Listen, here's what he was saying to this group of people. And it's true for us today. We are all responsible for this. You won't bow to God, he's saying to this group of religious people in your religion. You won't bow to God. You're bowing to your wishes, your desires, your plans. God never officially always gets on your calendar. It just by, by happenstance, if it's the right day, then it, you know, if, if we're going through the right set of circumstances, then, then we might be praying, we might be reading our word, we might actually go to church this week. It, this, this is something that you are, are living a religious life. He says, he says to these people, you won't bow to God. You're bowing to you and everything else that's going on. Then he says, 
Your religion is only external. Whenever you do do it, it's just an external act. And you go away saying, wasn't that good? That was a good thing. Maybe we'll do that again next month or whatever. And it's, it was all externally lived. It wasn't really internally taken. It wasn't transforming their life and making them into a new creation. It wasn't a part of engaging in the mission of Jesus Christ. It was a part of accomplishing certain tasks and things that needed to be done. Again, the textbook, the scriptures is just up on the shelf. And it's, it's something that we can pull off if it's necessary and find a proof text. But we're not living by it. We're not being changed by it. We're not being shaped by it. We're not being molded by it. And this began to prick their hearts as they heard Stephen talking about this because they were guilty of it. They were guilty of it. This was a picture of them that Stephen was spelling out. And then finally he says, you are without excuse. Because each time he was clipping through these things, he said, you don't bow before God. They had an excuse. It's easy for you to say, you know, you get to be around, you know, all of the other prophets and stuff. My life's harder. He says, your religion is only external. Oh, yeah? Well, I do things that you don't even know about. Like I prayed when I was in the shower the other day. You didn't even know that. They had all these excuses, and he ends it by saying, you are without excuse. Oh, that really made them mad. That really angered them to think. And and he had gone through, he says, you've received the law and the direction. You've seen angels. You have seen uh, powerful, miraculous things. Even in, in Stephen's life, he had been performing miracles. The people had witnessed them and seen them. They were very close to the time of the life of Jesus. And he's saying to them, you have seen all this. You know all of this. You've experienced all this personally. And what has it done for you? It has just created a bunch of excuses. But I want to tell you something. You are standing before God in this moment without an excuse. And the moment reaches a, a, a climax as the Holy Spirit working through Stephen reveals in a, in a fantastic indictment that they were, uh, you know, that, that they are the blasphemers, but not Stephen. They're accusing him of blaspheme, but he's saying, you're the ones that are blaspheming, not me. And it's, it's a masterful or a masterpiece sermon. And by the time that he concludes they're, they're in a fury. They're in a frenzy. And it's contrasted it's, uh, to their fury, their rage, their frenzy, is this majestic calm of Stephen. And that made it even worse for him. The mob was coming to get him, and he wasn't even running. He wasn't upset. He, he didn't try to, to scream at them. He didn't call for the authorities. He stood there as this mob began to, it says in Scripture, even gnash on him with their teeth. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heavens and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open, and and the Son of Man standing at the right hand. Stephen had confronted the world boldly and dramatically in, in his time. He, he said the things that needed to be said, and they were painful, and they were hurtful and, and to those who, who didn't want to hear them. But he, he spoke the truth, and he spoke it boldly and with courage. And even though that he knew that it was going to cost him something, there was going to be a price to be paid for this, Stephen was willing to proclaim the truth of the gospel. There's a price that you and I are paying in our time, in our generation, for making a stand against things that the world is wanting to conform to. 
And they're saying that Christianity is unloving if you believe X, Y, and Z. If you believe that there are only two genders, male and female, you're unloving, you're unkind, you're unchristian. There are Christians that are people who proclaim to be Christians who are proclaiming this and telling us. We're standing in an hour at a time, much like what Stephen was facing, and people do not want to hear the truth of Scripture. Can we be loving to people who are misidentifying themselves, who have been bent by uh, generations of sin, hurt, and pain? Yes, we can and we should. Yes. yes, we should be gentle, we should be loving, we should be kind, but we can tell the truth in love. That's right. yeah. And look what happens sometimes when you tell the truth in love, as Stephen did. Someone said, some minister and pastor said, if you do what he did and you say what he said, you may get what he got. Jesus said that. If they persecute me, they'll persecute you for my name's sake. All these things that they've done to me, they will do to you for my name's sake. And this mob killed Stephen. But God glorified him. They killed him. God glorified him. It is the courage to die. Do we have that kind of courage? They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my, uh, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I love that language. He fell asleep. <laughs> it so depicts, you know, our passing from this life into eternity as a Christian, right? Paul said we don't grieve as those who, who grieve without hope. You know, we grieve as Christians, but we right. grieve with hope. And we can look at our brothers and sisters who pass from this life, and we can say, and they fell asleep. They woke up in the presence of the Lord. They woke up in our eternal home, the place that we are, are wanting to be, longing to be, the place that really is home for us. And one of the reasons that we never feel at home here, and we always feel like we're misplaced we're mis in some way or another, is because we're not really home. And one day, we will be. But I want to point out in, in the closing of this, several aspects of Stephen's death that remind us of our Savior's sacrifice at the cross. He says in this passage, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Remember the words of Jesus, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Stephen says, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yeah. And lastly, they, they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one. In John chapter 15, verse 21, Jesus said, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. Does the fear of death keep you from living a bold Christ life? Does the fear of death, harm, hurt, pain, keep you from living a bold Christ life?
I met with our pastor, Kevin, in uh, Las Vegas. I was one of the pastors on staff. He was the senior pastor in, the, in, a, in a very large church there in Las Vegas. I met with him to tell him, uh, my direct report had asked me after I had, had submitted my resignation there to go and meet with, uh, with Pastor Kevin, and he wanted to speak with me. I met with him uh, to share with him our, how we felt God was t- you know, leading us to come to Texas. And uh, you know, we, had, we had a long conversation, and it was something that you know, was heavy on his heart because he had, had come to know us there, really loved us and, and saw a future for us and other opportunities, and uh, a conversation that well, I think originally we intended for 15 minutes or so wound up being about 45 minutes sitting in his office. And he never really got comfortable with what I was telling him with, you know, the call of God to come to Texas, and for good reason, you know, they're, they're, it sounds absolutely insane. I didn't have a job. I had nowhere to go. Um, we didn't know where we were going to live. We hadn't even identified the particular location, and it was just a lot of this kind of stuff that if you're a good pastor, if you care about not only your people, but your staff and stuff like that, this is, this is, this is one of those red flags that's just waving, you know, it's like, but please stay put. God, God's going to do something here. There's some things opening up. And, uh, you know, so there was unrest the whole time that we were talking. There was never a sense of like, oh, I agree, that's God. No mantle of blessing coming forward and stuff like that. Until this last question that he asked me, and he said, Alan, he says, what if you go and it doesn't work out? Aren't you afraid, you know, for your family and for your kids? What if you go and it just doesn't work out? And, you know, the things that are necessary for you to live and, and survive, they, they, don't, they don't take place. They don't fall into place. What if this is not God's leading? What if you go... And, and, and it doesn't work out. And I, I paused for a moment and I sat back, remembering all of the things that God had done leading up to this moment, how he had spoke to, directly to Michelle, how he spoke to my heart about this. And we were in two different locations and all of the miraculous things. You've heard me tell this story for those of you around before, all the, the miraculous parts of this story that came together. And I paused for a moment and... It was as if kind of God spoke through me, and I said, I think I'm more worried that it will work out. (laughs) And I wanted to share that story with you because I want to encourage you, if you're going to be fearful, be fearful about the right things, okay? Fear disobeying God. Fear missing out on an opportunity to worship Him. Fear raising your children to know the ways of the world better than they know the ways of God. Fear living a meaningless life. Fear getting what you think you want at the expense of what God has already given you. If you're going to have fear, fear this way. I invite our worship team to come back. Do not be afraid to die. Be afraid to live a life that is meaningless. That has no track record behind it. 
And as Michelle and I are entering probably what will be our last decade in, in ministry, if God allows and, and provides, the thing that we are eternally grateful for is behind us there's an army of people who we have been a part of their life and seeing them grow up to know Jesus and accept them. There are those who've answered the call and gone to missions. There are those who've answered the call, become pastors and leaders. There are those who are Sunday school teachers and worship team leaders, and they have answered the call for the next part of the generation uh, as a result of, of our shepherding and ministry into their life, and that's what we are eternally grateful. That's what we're leaving behind us, right? Yeah. We've been combing through our house as we have the empty nest thing now going on, and there's way too much stuff, you know? And so we're trying to, to get rid of it and, and uh, let go of it and get things out of there because we recognize that we can't take any of it with us. God's prepared what we need in eternity. He has. And so there's this, this process of understanding what your real legacy is. A real legacy is not my bank account. It's not the, the size of my home. It's not the car I drive. Uh, my real legacy is this army that has risen up behind us that calls us at one time or another pastor, youth pastor, children's pastor, leader, that they answered the call that God had on their life and they're faithfully moving forward. I want to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing this worship song and I'm going to come back. We're going to receive communion together and then Michelle will come and pray us out.